Special shout outs to Booga Booga Booga, Kathy, Layla, Holly, Poncho, and Becca. The global pandemic has hit our day jobs hard. If you want great content and can afford a few extra bucks, consider becoming a Southpaw supporter on Patreon. When it comes to left media, there is no charity, only solidarity. This is Sam. Speaking here is Marilia Coutinho. And this is Southpaw. Today on Southpaw, we have Dr. Marilia Cochino. Marilia is a researcher, university professor, strength coach, and a former competitive fencer and a world champion in powerlifting. She holds both an MS and a PhD, and her background includes biology, biochemistry, ecology, Latin American studies, and sociology of science and sport. She's published lots of books, studies, and articles and has done too many other things to list. But this isn't a story you're expecting. Marilia is a radical and a scholar, first and foremost, with an incredible life story. For listeners, let me preface this ahead of time that there will be talk of suicide and sexual assault, so be aware of that before listening to the rest of this episode. And one more note, this was recorded several weeks before the COVID-19 outbreak. But everything we discuss is pretty perennial. And with some things, especially about fascist dictatorships and some of the unintended consequences that come out of it, are uniquely poignant right now. So with all that out of the way, this is my conversation with Marilia Cochino. Hi, Marilia. Hi, Sam. Uh, I'm from Brazil. And the reason why my name is so hard to pronounce is that it's a specifically Brazilian name. It didn't come from Portugal. Like most names in Brazil are from Portugal, like Maria, Jose, Manuel. Um, all these names uh, were imported from Portugal. But Marília is a, is a name that was uh, coined by a poet um, who was a member of one of the first insurgencies against the Portuguese. Uh, it didn't work. He was exiled to Africa. The other guys were um, executed. So my mother chose this name and maybe that generation was, was fond of me. Yeah, sounds a little uh, progressive because, you know, these guys were, were, were attempting to, to, uh, to do something of a revolution there and they failed. So let's start from there then. Let's start with your origin story because you kind of already gave the origin of your name. So where were you born? I know in Brazil, but what part of Brazil were you born in and where did you grow up? And let's just start from there. Exactly. My origins actually explain, like so many other people or my maybe everybody, let's be, some, let's be a little Freudian here. Um, <laughs> origins explain everything. I was born into a very, very different family. Um, I was born in Sao Paulo. Brazil, and 
I was born to a very different family. My father is one of the founding fathers of geology in Latin America, and uh, he was he was one of I think the second generation of professor at the University of São Paulo. The University of São Paulo was uh, an experimental higher education um, initiative in Latin America, and it, it still is one of the hundred best universities in the world. Um, it's it's funny to see Midwestern universities uh, ask for my credentials because they all rank lower. And uh, yes, I'm very proud. I am very proud of my alma mater because that's where my father came from. And this is where we talk about origins. My father was born to a, to an aristocratic family. Very, I, I, I deeply despise that family. Uh, his mother was a psychopath, I think. I, I, I honestly think she she was not only a racist and a bigot, and but she she tortured the their her mates, black children, and she she was horrendous. I I I have no no good memories of her, and she tortured my father too. Um, he was. He was a silent rebel, and his father was also um, a horrible person. Uh, he was a vice mayor in São Paulo in a, in an age where you know these people were horrible. They were not only right wing, but they were connected to the right wing of the Catholic Church. And in my my grandfather, I don't call him a grandfather. My father's father tried to. Um, Try to forbid my father from marrying my mother for several reasons. First, he hated my father. Uh, he only accepted his sons to uh, choose from medicine and, and uh, law. My father didn't want either. So he silently refused to do it. And he was punished. And finally, he um, went into the University of Sao Paulo at, at the school of, at the time, it was called the School of Natural History, where um, he finally chose a track of geology. Um, I mean, he's the only person who matters in that family. It's a huge family, and there's nothing good from it. And that's it. I mean, my 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 father and my mother both came from Catholic families, and both became a little bit radical atheists, hardcore atheists. My mother's mother was, was a, a very, is, was an incredible person, but also a Catholic. She was a, she was a pianist, an incredibly talented one. She was, um, she had to take care of her whole family, two boys and a girl, the two boys died. And she was left by her, uh, her horrible husband who, beat her and stuff. She became a piano teacher. At that time, it was higher education, and few women had higher education. My grandmother was born in 1897. That's it. And she was an incredible woman, but she and my mother didn't get along very well. My mother and my father actually created their, their own little clan their own little niche, and they protected us from the influences of both families. So my family is my, 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 
my references are my father and my mother. And um, possibly a reason that I, I, all my educational background is at the University of Sao Paulo and where I had um, an invitation to, to go to Rockefeller and or to do what, no, I wanted to do all my uh, undergraduate and um, master's and PhD at the University of Sao Paulo because my father was, um, was a pioneer there. So it's, it's a family thing. Many of my early values come from them. I mean, they're atheists um, in a society where this was not great. They were liberal. Um, and I don't know exactly how they managed to, to talk to me about politics because I was born in 1963 and the military right wing coup was in 1964. So I grew up under um, an extremely violent um, extremist dictatorship. I don't remember anything about, obviously I was born, I was one year old when the, the, the tanks marched on the streets and, and, and killed the first wave of, of militants. And also my generation, my friends and I, we, um, we lived a, a surreal reality where we, we kind of suspected there was something wrong. And we suspected that our parents were, were uptight when certain subjects were, were mentioned and when certain relatives, you know, right-wing relatives showed up. I, I remember my, my mom um, being very stiff and with a very controlled expression. That's not my mom at all. And to a little kid, that's little kids are very, very attentive to whatever's happening to their parents. And when I talk to my friends from those days, and uh, we keep in touch, we figured out the military dictatorship slowly. Uh, you couldn't talk to kids about that because you could get your, your whole family killed. That was that bad. Okay, you don't you don't tell your kids anything that they uh, can you know tell their best friend or ask the teacher or you know, and uh, that's how it is to grow under a right wing dictatorship. Here in the United States, I don't have any idea what it is. So was it then your parents were trying to protect you and also around right wing family members or friends? They had to be cautious about what they said for the safety of the family? Exactly. Because children talk. So, and we, uh, in, under a dictatorship, you cannot tell everything to a child because they will talk. They will, they will say things they're not supposed to say. Like, you know, go right up to that uncle, that fascist uncle and say, you're a fascist, I don't like you, why don't you leave? I mean, I, I saw that with my own child. When we... <laughs> She, she went right up to people that we didn't like and said, why don't you leave? We don't like you. <laughs> Children are like that. So you have to be careful. If you say something like that under a dictatorship, your whole family can be wiped out. And very soon, my, 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 old, uh, my second brother, who is a transgender woman now, and he's a, an internationally renowned 
cartoon artist, Laechi Kutin. He, um, he became a sympathizer and then a member of the Communist Party, the Brazilian Communist Party. There are two Communist Parties in Brazil. There's the Brazilian Communist Party and the Communist Party of Brazil. Um, they broke up in six, 1964, I think. And when I was um, at the age of being recruited, there was it was I was just following the track into the Brazilian Communist Party. Um, so I, I couldn't know that either, right? That's a word you don't speak. Communist, socialist, no. Um, uh, I remember being aware that something extremely bad was happening when I was around 12, 1975. That was what they called Operation Oban. Um, and during the dictatorship, there were waves or operations against different uh, clandestine leftist groups. The first ones were the urban guerrillas. They were the first ones to be, to be wiped out. They, uh, they found the, the leaders and tortured, killed, disappeared. That's it. Uh, then there was the rural guerrilla, the Communist Party of Brazil that was uh, aligned with China. They, uh, they were also picked up at 71. The last one to, be, to have a specific operation to dismantle it was the Brazilian Communist Party. It was infiltrated everywhere. That's that was the the, the, the tactic at the time, um, um, which is something for me. It's strategy one hundred and one. When when you realize that the masses are not uh, you're not capable of mobilizing the masses, then it's time for um, grassroots activities. Very very silent. You grow uh, grassroots activities, and the Brazilian Communist Party. That's what they were doing. They had infiltrated uh, the health system, they had infiltrated uh, journalism, um, and a bunch of public services. Um, so in 75, um, many physicians, doctors, journalists were picked up by, by, by the repressive forces. One of them was my, my, my brother's best friend. He was uh, brutally tortured, together with an, another friend, Vladimir Herzog. Um, Herzog became an icon because he will, he died during the, the torture. I mean, he was murdered. Um, torture has side effects, you know? You can't survive. They can decide to murder you, or you can die in the middle of it. He died of a heart attack during the the torture sessions and the image that everybody knows of him is uh, they're faking his suicide which which they didn't even try hard his feet were on the ground and and he was hanging from the 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 window it was ridiculous i mean it was like a slap on the face we were not even going to try hard to make a make it look like a suicide, and eventually, after the dictatorship fell, uh, his family and um, several movements 
uh, filed a lawsuit against the federal government, and they won. That was very important for us. But back to when they were still uh, being tortured, I overheard my mother talking to someone else or my mom and dad. I don't know. It's, it's memory is confused. Just remember I was in the living room and I overheard that. And I overheard that they took um, Sergio, uh, my friend's, my, my brother's best friend, took their teeth off and they, uh, they started, she started to describe the torture. And that's when I realized that, yeah, it was real. Me and my best friend, we collected records um, by some uh, important protest um, musicians in Brazil. Chico Buarque uh, is one of was our favorite because his lyrics could give us a hint of what was happening. It was all met metaphorical. Um, so we, we, I remember me and her sitting down and listening carefully to see if we understood what was what was happening and since censorship was really um a thing and the the, the censors were uneducated and dumb uh, sometimes he censored a whole uh song so there was no lyrics on the song but they let the other an, another song that was much more sub much more against the dictators, much, I don't know how to say, much more anti-fascist, more, uh, and, and we, we, we could listen. We just didn't know what the monster from the lake was. Who were they? The monster from the lake that would, was going to eat everybody. And it, it's, it was all about metaphors, and we kids were, were trying to make sense of it. Because our parents wouldn't tell us exactly what it was. We just knew we, we, we're not supposed to say words like communist, socialist, and um, especially we're not supposed to talk politics. It's dangerous. Don't do it. Um, one day also, I guess, in 75, there was a civics teacher. The civics teacher were actually indicated. They were put into public schools. Um, they were handpicked by the military. She was scary as fuck. We remember her. She, she screamed at us. And that school was a school inside the university. So many of us were, were actually from left-wing families. Some of, some of the kids there had lost a parent already. And we were scared. And she told us to, she gave us an assignment to, and the assignment was write about the great advances promoted by the revolution. But the revolution, it was, was a name the military gave to the coup. I had no idea what that meant. I came home and I didn't understand if my mom was mad at me or not. Because when I showed that to her, she had a reaction. And my older brother, my oldest brother and her, wrote the whole thing because I had no idea. None of us had. Um, everybody there, I'm pretty sure that that assignment was, was written by their, their parents. Um, and I got a C-. She wrote in red, 
you did not emphasize the control over inflation and a bunch of things that I have no idea about. Um, and we were all like dead silent as she screamed at us. And she screamed stuff about the revolution that I can't recall because I didn't understand anything. We just looked at each other and it's, we're as, as, as silent as possible. And then we went home and I gave that to my mom. Uh, and we never talked about it again. Um, after that, there was what was called the opening of the dictatorship, the transition to democracy. The transition to democracy started in 77. Then it was 14. And that's when I was in fencing. How did you get into fencing? I'm possibly not very um, normal. I might be um, in the autistic spectrum or um, have some atypical epilepsy. That's what um, the neurologist along the way said. I mean, uh, too many diagnostics. And 12 or 13 I kind of stopped interacting socially with other kids. I never interacted well um, with, you know, young kids. Um, so my mother found there was this uh, sports club, and that sports club was where um, elite athletes were selected in the country. And there was a talent screening program for kids. And she enrolled me when I was 10 or 11. It took two years or two semesters. I don't know. Um, I got to try many different sports like track and field, uh, tennis, um, gymnastics, volleyball, um, fencing, of course. There were many others. I've, I forgot uh, which ones. And uh, I... By the end of the semester, you in the second semester you 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 um you, you chose less sports. In the first semester there were many sports. You were there three times a week for many hours, and um, after that we uh, just uh, went down to three the three sports that we were best at. And me was fancy gymnastics and track and field the gymnastics then the, the, the last choice was made by the coaches and the three coaches wanted me i have no idea why the track and field coach wanted me because I, I have short limbs I'm, I'm built to lift or to do or gymnastics but not at all for track and field and short short limb stocky very uh, and not for fighting either. Uh, my, my limbs are short. But for some reason, I I think it's power. My my power output is, is really uh, big. And that explains also why I was good at fencing. Because if you if you look at the body type of the fencers today, they're tall, slim, uh, narrow. I'm not narrow. I have uh, wide shoulders and short limbs. I'm really not built to be a good fencer. But my lunch was something like three meters, 
it's really, it was really impressive. Um, I was a tiny, a tiny fencer that could uh, reach really far. And I managed to win and win. And on my first year, um, I, I reached the, the, the senior level. Um, at that time, you, you progress from novice to junior to senior by um, achievement. So um, if you, depending on the type of championship, whatever you want, you accumulated points. And I was the first person to achieve the senior level at 14. Um, also, one thing I remember, and I was really, really fond of my, my, my master. My master came from Sicily. He was a, he was a, a, a street kid, a poor kid who fought with knives on the streets. And one day he was caught by the police and he was 12. And that was not good at, in Italy at the time. He's 93 years old now. But his parents went there, picked him up, punished him, everything. But that specific officer realized that that kid was too good with knives. He's, he was the best fighter. Knives on the street. So they took him to a gymnasium to, to learn fencing. Um, that's where he became a good fencer. And he came to Brazil. Uh, to, and he started his life selling pepper. <laughs> and eventually he, he was very a very successful businessman. And he taught fencing because he loved it. And he sort of adopted me. I... I wanted to win to make him proud. Like, I think I wanted to do good things in science because, well, science is the, the most important thing in civilization for me. And because I wanted my parents to be proud. Uh, fencing was that. Fencing was my first love. But when I was recruited to the Brazilian Communist Party, it was it was not a good experience. Okay, uh, the the young adults running the, the the party were not psychologically prepared to do anything. They were authoritarian, and they they didn't like me. I was a I was a, a young kid, but I had read everything. I had read more than they had um, for reasons. Uh, I don't know, family reasons. We're, we're reading family. Um, I, I had already read all uh, relevant Marx and Engels' works, and that made them insecure. So they punished me all the time. They tried to humiliate me. They assigned me with a special education uh, uh, punishment things, like, you know... Um, the petite bourgeois here has to be re-educated to be a, a decent communist. And I was only 15. That was pretty brutal. Uh, they made sure that I had to be humiliated to, to behave. And they were always punishing me because if, if, I, if I left, I was putting people in danger. If I, if I existed, they didn't like me at all. So Brazilian Communist Party was a horrible experience and at some point 
they left our um, K-12 cell alone. There were five people, two went to, to college, and I was basically alone. And I had no weekly supervision. And I, I kind of conducted uh, work as I, as I thought best. And at a certain point, they reappeared. And they wanted to destroy everything I had built, all the contacts I had in schools and stuff. So I was recruited by a Trotskyist organization. They were, they were very uh, active. Were you still fencing at this time? No, that was a sad thing. When the Communist Party recruited me, the way to control me completely was to uh, force me to abandon anything that was important to me. Fencing and also uh, studying hard. I, 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 I was 15, but I, I, I liked science. I was already reading and studying biochemistry at the college level. And I, I was forced to abandon all of that. Um, the, the thing is, if people don't understand what it is to be a, a militant under a dictatorship, because uh, the fact that you are a leftist doesn't mean you're a, a good person and doesn't mean you are understanding, doesn't mean you can deal with teenagers and stuff like that. It's There's a lot of bad stuff that happens inside clandestine. Uh, parties. That doesn't mean the right is the, the right wing is right, and um, many of the people that suffered under in the clandestine parties uh, became right wingers. Many of my friends, and I, 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 I can't forgive them because I was raped at the Trotskyist party, and that became a cover story in 2011 because being raped and sexually abused. During years, uh, well, it's kind of damaging. And I attempted suicide after that, so I never recovered. <laughs> a woman never recovers from that. Uh, that doesn't mean the right wing is right. The fact that there are leftist organizations that are not conducting themselves properly, that are not, uh, that harbor um very bad people, people who are not true revolutionaries, that doesn't mean it's wrong. And I think I am entitled to say that. I, I was brutally treated in both organizations. Um, and the Trotskyist party, that, that was even worse. Um, sexual abuse is because that's how you want to control women. When everything else fails, when humiliating them fails, when everything else fails, it's rape. Rape doesn't fail. Rape shuts you. It, it, no, no woman, no young woman uh, treated this way is going to react differently. They just withdraw. And I, I remember I, I wanted to die, but um, the Brazilian Communist Party had already prepared me for that. Uh, the thing is, during the dictatorship, when you are recruited, the first thing, and you are young, the first thing you learn is that all the, all the changes you are fighting to achieve, you're not going to see them. It's for future generations. 
So basically, it's it's like being recruited to um, to a religious cult. You're never going to see it in your life. So you have to give up your life. You give, give up your life to the revolution. Um, if, if, this seems horrible, right? But if you think it's, a, it's it, what we're fighting is a fascist uh, power, it makes certain sense that the people who are in the revolutionary army are going to put the revolution above anything else. Women are not supposed to get pregnant. You're not supposed to study. You're not supposed to do anything. Your first priority is the revolution. So I was trained for that. And I was trained to not question that. Uh, when I was raped, I actually, uh, the first time, <laughs> there were many, I, I, I notified one supervisor, they, they called the ethics committee. And uh, the rapist was not punished at all. And they laughed at me when I was climbing the stairs up. Um, like, you're stupid. Why, why, why do you even, do you even report? You're just supposed to shut up. And these are bad things, but these are real things. These are things that I, we have to, it's my opinion and my, no, I don't have opinions. It's my, the result of my analysis of this time is that there's a learning curve about how to fight fascism too. The fact that one is an anti-fascist person um, doesn't give him, doesn't exonerate him or her from everything else. It just means they understood fascism has to be fought. But there's a long way to go to be coherent in every aspect. Like not be a sexist, not to oppress your 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 compañeros, not to your comrades, not to, you know, this requires much more work. And you shouldn't let um, people who are not coherent, not capable of true leadership to be leaders. Because that results in what, what I saw happening to me. And it happened to many, many, many other women um, all over Latin America. This is what happened to me, happened to lots of others. And it doesn't mean we, 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 we turn to the other side. It's bad. It shouldn't happen again. Uh, but I'm still the same anti-fascist I always was. So it's not a light switch, right? I think that's something I've talked about a lot here where people think, okay, now I've adopted this new politics, right? It's almost like uh, becoming an atheist where it's like, okay, I no longer believe in God. And now it's like a light switch. I'm somehow imbued with everything to replace that previous knowledge or I know everything there is to know about science. And it's not. It just says, okay, I'm putting this behind or I am stepping one foot into a new way of thinking. But that doesn't mean anything, right? It doesn't make you automatically a good person or know everything you need to know. And I think people make the same mistake with politics and that, okay, uh, you know, almost like how people like use it as an identity. It's like, I'm this. That means now I'm done. I'm good. You can't question me anymore. And it's like, no, that just means you're now making an effort. You should always be making an effort. And I think people too often don't realize that, that it's just saying that you are trying to do better. 
And so I think from uh, your story, it's that it's that people are like, okay, I'm a leftist. Don't question anything I do. Everything I do is good. And it's like, you can still do bad things. You can still be a bad person. That in itself doesn't explain the totality of you or all your actions. Amazing comments, Sam. Thank you. Um, the thing is, people don't realize that um, engaging or adopting a, a, a certain ideology and, in, and you know, during my days, uh, being recruited to a clandestine organization, that, that's a, a different level of commitment. A whole different level of commitment. Doesn't it's just the first step. There's a lot, there's a long way to go. And um I I, I think what what you said is 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 basically correct. I think um and the uh, parallel with atheism. Um I see a lot of people embracing or questioning their previous religion and becoming an atheist, but I don't think they're atheists. They're anti-theists. They're against any religion, against any church. They attack religious people. And that's not being an atheist. Being an atheist is mostly, when I explain that, people kind of look, hey, are you a traitor? <laughs> um, I'm an atheist because um, a, a deity, a god or a goddess, um, is something I, I, I can't use it as an assumption. Um, in my cognitive universe. It, it doesn't work. I tried. <laughs> I truly tried. But it doesn't work because it's artificial. That doesn't mean I, I, I don't, I don't even, you know, I, I participate in, in religious rituals. Um, as my significant other says, I'm, uh, I'm a great Catholic, except for the God thing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, i Eventually, uh, the Catholic Church in, in Latin America uh, was dominated by the, the liberation theology. They're, they're adorable. Many of them died, and they were better soldiers of the revolution and better fighters against fascists than the clandestine organized uh, left-wing parties. They, they're great. They're amazing. They are, they are coherent, and they are compassionate and to explain what liberation theology is it's a type of i guess let's say a christian socialism and it's a kind of a, an idea of equality and being non-oppressed that's what liberation means you're being liberated from oppression and giving a chance to live your life free and have time to do things and that also means uh you have to have the money to do those things so in that way Christians then with that type of ideology might be better for the planet or the world than like an atheist asshole. And going back to left politics, I think also people don't realize the whole point of left politics is to increase human happiness and lessen human suffering. But I think sometimes people forget the ultimate point and think it's just about the politics. And it's like, it's not, it's just a tool. It's a conduit. That was the problem with the liberation theology with the Vatican at the time. The Vatican was a it started in '59 uh, during uh, the, one of the bishop uh, the bishops um, uh, concilio. Um, it's a it, it's a it's a sort of uh, uh, it's a special type of meeting synod. Uh, but I'm not sure the people listening to this are know are going to know what the synod is. It's a, it's a special, very special, high level meeting among bishops that don't happen now all the time. 
Okay, so it happened in '59 in uh, in Latin America. I think I think it was Mexico, and that was when the first uh, the first wave of liberation theology started. And if you if you think it was while the Cuban Revolution was taking place, and many revolutionary and progressive things were happening in Latin America. Latin America was boiling uh, just to be overwhelmed with dictatorships in the 70s promoted by the United States. Sorry to say that, but <laughs> it's true. Um, then liberation theology spread like wildfire because the poor, of uh, the, the, the simple and very honest priests uh, in Latin America who had joined the church, that was the final explanation of true Christianity for them. Um, for them, it's like, well, that is Christianity. That that's that's what it is. I mean, it's loving the other, and so we cannot allow oppression. We cannot allow uh, social classes. They became socialists, but they didn't call themselves socialists. They they said this is true Christianity. We we have to defend justice and equality because that's what Jesus and his followers uh, proposed. Um, so when I was a teenager, there was liberation theology around. I'm not the only reason I, 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 I went into the communist track and not the religious, no, the, the leftist Christian track like other people did is that my family is atheists. Um, yeah, um, other people who suffered serious uh, punishment by, by the dictatorship, they were initially members of the, they called, um, I think Catholic Youth, then became, um, uh, they changed the name to something that looked like Popular Action or one of the many uh, clandestine parties, but they started off from inside the church. People don't realize that, but yeah, the Catholic Church in Brazil doesn't have anything to do, anything to do with the Catholic Church in the United States. But I managed <laughs> to find a liberation theology church in um, Gainesville when I lived there in Florida, and they were my best friends. I, I went to church every Sunday, and that's why my, my significant other says, yeah, you're a gay, great Catholic. You do everything except for the God thing. But that was your community then. Yes. And with, I mean, there was one of them. I, I don't remember his name. My, my best friends are uh, John and, and Tim. But there was this guy uh, who um, crossed the border to the Mexican side to take medications to the indigenous folks that were fighting uh, the government. And he got kicked out. Five times. <laughs> he was in the no-enter list in all possible entries, but he managed to go. And he was this funny guy. He was always laughing, always happy. Um, and he didn't care. He, I mean, the chances that the, the, the border police are going to catch him and kill him were great. He didn't care. He just crossed. So, yeah. It was my community. We were engaged. We, we did some 
some work with um, um, low-income nursing homes. And um, I started off something that I always wanted, but at the time I only I could only do it as a correspondence thing with prison uh, inmates. Um, then I then I moved from from Gainesville and I didn't find uh, uh, I, I didn't find anything. I actually I, I observed the uh, Jewish high holidays too. Um, the 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 rabbis don't care. As 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 my my friends would say, look, we don't care if you don't believe in God. God believes in you. And I said it's not a question of believing. I don't believe in anything. I, I just can't assume it. It's a doesn't work in my brain. And they said, don't worry, don't worry. It's it's not it's not important. For them, it's, it was not, so I, I, I don't really care. I, I think many of the atheist movements, and I, I identify when you criticize them, uh, are not atheists. They're anti-theist. They're anti-religion. And they're missing a point that religion frequently, religion is the only form available of political action and cultural resistance. I, in Brazil, the African Brazilian religions, very syncretic, um, for hundreds of years, were the only form of cultural resistance available to the African Brazilian population. I call them the most unwilling immigrants ever. I mean, they were forced uh, to Brazil. More, more African slaves died in Brazil than were born. Uh, that that it's that bad, and the cultural resistance is 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 uh, materialized uh, a lot in the African Brazilian religions, Candomblé, Umbanda, and there are others, but mostly Candomblé and Umbanda. I am a daughter of Yemanja. Yemanja is one of the Orishas. Orishas, that's how it's said in Yorumba. If so if you're uh, anti-religion or anti-theist, there's something missing, right? There's like a lack of compassion and a, and a cultural sensitivity and an understanding of people's plight and what they have available. It's not like uh, you remove something and you're like, just replace it with something else. And it's like, what if there is nothing else? Yes. And, and it's also, as I see it, it's condescending and authoritarian towards other people. Let's say, um, take the hijab day in, in Iran. So. Um, I'm not a Muslim. I'm not a Middle Eastern. So who am I to say what's right or wrong for them? So there was the anti the the no hijab day. They didn't call anti. They say no hijab day. What they were what they were uh, advocating for was the right to wear or not wear the hijab. They were not calling for abolishing the Mahisha. I understood it very well. So I shared their um, material. Not mine, theirs. I'm not a Muslim. I don't live in Iran. So it's they are the people who have to say what they want. And what they wanted is the right to wear or not to wear. 
they didn't want to abolish the hijab. And then an American, very Western, white American uh, woman tried to educate me. The hijab is a, is a symbol of oppression. You can't be in favor of the hijab. I said, I, I'm not in favor or against the hijab. And I think that's not my place. Okay? That's their fight. I am supporting a progressive fight. That's all I'm going to do. And that's what we should do. I'm not a black person. So whatever they want, what, the most I can do is support them. I cannot say what they should or should not do. And what anti-theist people fail to understand is that frequently the only form of cultural resistance, and that's so important, so important for one's identity, is religion. Because that's, that's one of the things uh, about immigration and assimilation. Um, one thing is to say, okay, we're going to help you to transition from your country to this country that you had to adopt as your homeland. Because whatever, okay, there's war in your country or uh, for whatever reason. But we're not going to force you to um, let go of your, your religion or your cultural habits. Actually, one of the things I always tell to, to immigrants is that do not stop talking your language with your children. Language is extremely important, and it's a part of cultural resistance. So um, people who are anti-theist um, are actually doing the oppressor's job. You know, they're forcing assimilation. I think Americans in general have a hard time grasping this because once they decide what they want to do, we can support. And America is kind of like, no, we're going to go tell you what to do. We're not going to support. And if you decide something, we might be against it. This has kind of been America's foreign policy all throughout the world and especially in Latin America. Sam, it's visible in America, but it's all over. <laughs> I think, um, <laughs> yeah, I think every imperialist country had exactly the same perspective. Um, if you look at 19th century England, that's exactly what they did everywhere. They quenched local culture to the point that the uh, um, Indian, uh, in India, okay, uh, upper class, there are people who don't speak any other language except, except English. It's that bad. So in Brazil, uh, the, the slaves, that's where Umbanda, for example, was formed. They um they had to hide their the their orishas, the, the the icons, the statues of their orishas, under the white cloth that covered the their religious shrine. And over the shrine, they put Catholic saints. That's why for every orisha, there is a Catholic saint. They didn't choose that. They were forced so that when uh, one of the, the uh, plantation owners uh, went into the uh, Senzala, Senzala was where the, the, the slaves were kept, and looked over the shrine, they would see Catholic saints. So that was okay. If you were caught with a 
with a statue of an orisha, you could uh, be executed. And so, uh, not Americans. Uh, everybody, every every oppressor behaves the same way because quenching um, the the, the oppressors, the the, the the oppressed people's culture, is very very important to uh, to control them, and so that's why I, I argue with anti-theists that by by rejecting uh, other religions, you are actually helping the oppressors by by not allowing, for example. Jewish or Muslim people here in the United States to have their own church, to have their own practices, to speak their language. What you're doing is you're doing the oppressor's job. You're controlling these people. You're taking their power away. Um, one thing is to be able to communicate and um, be part of, of the new um uh, country that's that's also complicated but we'll go back to that later uh, the other thing is to force the immigrant to uh, reject their own culture that's that's uh, that's that's very dangerous that's that's uh, uh, an oppression tactic it works and it destroys people destroys cultures and destroys progress in general. So no, I'm an atheist. I have, because I because my my cognitive schemes are different. But I'm okay with everybody as <laughs> long as their religion doesn't promote oppression. Their church is not going there to oppress people. I don't like evangelicals. Actually, I hate them. Actually, I think they should be taxed. <laughs> When they adopt that colonizing kind of white settler tactics, then it becomes a problem. I never met one who didn't. I never met an evangelical who didn't think that uh, everybody else is going to to hell, and uh, and they're you know Trump supporters, and they're going to say, uh, I, "I've heard, oh no, the most uh, uh, intolerant religion is is Islam." No, it's not. See what happened in Pittsburgh. All the, the, the Muslim people there gathered to help rebuild the, the synagogue. They raised $120,000 to the Jewish synagogue. Sorry, but that's not a sign of intolerance. So, no, the intolerant people are the white evangelicals. I'm very, very intolerant with the intolerant. That's a good way to, to express it. A very pulperian. What was that? Pulper. Karl Pulper. Karl Popper, yeah, he's a philosophy of science. Yeah, and also wrote um, The Enemies of the Open Society. That's where he uh, he left uh, philosophy of science for a while and talked about society. And he said that we, we, we have a tolerance paradox. Being tolerant with tolerance is intolerance. So we have to be intolerant with intolerance. And that's a big issue for me with uh, malicious and, you know, this 
paradoxical country, the United States, that allows paramilitary organizations to exist inside um, so-called democratic society. That that's uh, sorry, it's a no-no. You know, for years and years, we all political scientists we cheered for the exceptionalism of American democracy. Oh my God, they invented modern pluralistic democracy. And now we're all like, oh, we got it wrong. <laughs> and that is, a, a, to say the least, it's a, an atypical democracy, if it's a democracy at all. We don't know what to call it because it's a democracy that allows paramilitary fascist organizations inside it. And it's okay. <laughs> it's fine. They have, they have their compounds uh, that, you know, um, embrace totalitarian ideologists and um, live according to them, uh, uh, have a shitload of weapons. Sorry, it's just not compatible with a modern democracy. They'll even have protests where they're guarded and uh, escorted by the police as well. Just just so one now. Yeah. If you, you, you talk to a political scientist from any other country, they say, oh, okay. Wait a second. <laughs> I don't know what name to give to this because it's uh, kind of strange. The name of, of freedom of religion um, in the United States, it's legal to be a pedophile, to be to um to disrespect to take uh civil rights away from women and uh because well in that specific compound in that cult they have freedom of religion to live in the middle ages uh, okay there's something strange here first of all you defend like hell the modern nation state we all know it's artificial okay they fucked africa by imposing nation states. But let's say, okay, there's the United States with that little map around it. So you suppose inside that little map, the lines that define the United States, um, everybody lives under uh, certain laws that define a democracy. Oh no, in certain little areas that are called compounds, people can live in another world. Oh, okay, wait a second. So what are we going to call this? Is that a democracy? It is a nation state because it relates to other countries as a nation state. But what is it? I don't know. It's not a democracy. It's something else. It's a heterogeneous regime. It's like the United States is not a single country. Oh, it's not. I, that I know. Uh, <laughs> it's not a single regime. I, I don't I don't think it's a um, every democracy is different. There's you know the ideal the Weberian ideal type is just an ideal type, and then we you know theory of state we 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 try to interpret what's happening inside a country according to its institutional history. But here in the United States, the so-called exceptionalism is more like. An aberration. <laughs> uh, so that's, uh, I, I, I think being an anti-fascist here in the United States 
It's recognizing that this aberration is fucking dangerous. The idea that, no, the United States always handled all its problems and came out good. Hey, how long are you talking about? It's a very recent country. It's a, it's, 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 it's a recent, it's a very recent whatever. It's not like you're France or England that exists for thousands of years. And they don't say that. They don't, they don't say, no, we always come out good. No, sometimes they came out real bad. And saying that, no, everything's going to be all right here in the United States because we always face every problem and came out good. This is ridiculous. There's not enough time to say that. And also, it didn't start real good. <laughs> the matter of terrorism was actually rehearsed here in Oklahoma against black neighborhoods. They rehearsed it. It was invented here. So... Uh, let's put our, uh, you know, let's let's slow down about everything. Uh, and that's, I think, what's going on in the social sciences is that we're revisiting many of the concepts. Everybody's reading the classics again because we got a lot of things wrong. <laughs> a lot of things. Let's go back to your story now. Did you end up, while you were in Brazil, then leaving these clandestine parties? Yes, I left and I came back to Sao Paulo. I was in Rio. I was um, sent to Rio to start certain activities among uh, in the, the college setting, students' movement. How did you end up leaving these parties? I had a bad nervous breakdown after, after being raped, after a forced abortion. Uh, that, that, was a, <laughs> that was fucking horrible. And it's one of the things that I throw on the faces of uh, evangelicals here. Um, Brazil, I think, leads the world in the number of deaths, uh, we female deaths um, in clandestine abortions. Um, I was number 656 that day in the clinic. It operated in a very affluent uh, neighborhood in Sao Paulo. And you had all sorts of people going there. And they aborted, I guess, about 200 women a day. As I said, I was number 56. And it was something real fast. So they punctured my uterus. And I, I, I was very sick. And I was punished for being sick. <laughs> I, got a, I got a suspension at the uh, PSTU, the party that uh, was called actually Socialist Con Con Convergence. And uh, I was punished because my uterus was punctured and was not uh, functioning at my best. Then after that, I was sent to Rio and I had a horrible infection. I could have lost my uterus, my ovaries, everything. It's called an excitus. Um, and from, from illness to illness, because I was living in horrible conditions, uh, there was a, a moment that I just crashed. And then I came back to Sao Paulo and um, I, I, I went to the university. I had already been accepted at the University of Sao Paulo. And I just started, started going to classes again. First, just two classes, uh, the ones I liked best, biochemistry and geology. And the next, the next year, I just 
resume my my normal um, scientific, my academic life. Now, one of the things you talk about and also write about is body alienation. Yeah. Is this the point where you started to wrap your mind around that idea? No, no. Only after the suicide. Yeah. Yeah. Here's the thing. Um, If you don't think about something, it doesn't mean the thing stops existing. So I, I just didn't even think, didn't name uh, what had happened to me. So rape, all that stuff, no, non-existent. And if you don't talk about these things, they brew inside you. And also, um, I was having a hard time understanding um, the politics inside the university. Um, I was supposed to assume uh one of one of the jobs there and I didn't then I came to the United States eventually I hooked up with a guy was a, <laughs> my my worst relationship with a very authoritarian man and my friends said well this is the most bizarre thing we ever saw in your life because you never you were never submissive to anything. They were wrong. I was submissive, very submissive. I let people rape me. So that marriage was a little bit of a reminder of things I had lived before. And in 2005, when I had to leave the, I had to, in 2004, I had to leave academia. I was, I weighed no more than 98 pounds. I, I was, I was a little skeleton. And uh, over over medicated. Uh, nobody knew what I had. Uh, I, I was I was a mess. So I handed over my last report, and I was a senior level researcher and professor. So I was principal investigator in uh, re in, in research project. I had a lot of money, so I had a lot of responsibility. I realized that. I couldn't do that any longer. I handed my last report and then I left academia. I started to get better and then and I started weight training. And then for a month, I stopped training and it, everything came back to me. Everything came back, all the memories at once. How did you end up weight training in this period and then end up stopping? Good question. Um, I left academia because I was, I realized was, I was dying. One friend said, we were actually, we would have, be happy when you die because watching you die slowly was horrible. And when I left academia, I thought, okay, let's, let's see what I'm going to do. Um, I, I found a psychiatrist and it was a director of the, the psychiatry department at the university, and I said, "Look, I, I don't want to be over medicated anymore. So if I'm going to die, um, let me die doing something good, something that gives me pleasure, because being over medicated is really not my thing. So I slowly uh, stopped many of the medications. We kept one or two, 
and then nothing. As I I I, I, took, I uh, went to a gym and got a membership, because I remember the only time I was truly happy before was when I was fencing. Um, I didn't know why, so I thought I I needed to integrate something with my body. My and that's when I started to think um, about well. Maybe I neglected a whole dimension of this thing. Uh, I, I, I can't figure things out if my body's being constantly attacked. So at this gym, um, I, I became friends with a, uh, a coach, and he was a bodybuilder too. And he was writing his master's program. So I helped him with the literature, and he helped me with you know teaching me um, how to train. Um, and it was going well. I was not under any medication and I was training every day. But then for professional reasons, I, I had to go to, to another state for, a to be, uh, in a dissertation committee. And then there were, you know, other things I had to do. I stopped training and that's something you can't do. <laughs> You know, don't realize that um, being inactive, if being inactive was a source of, of your mind being in a very dark place, if you become inactive again, it's going back to that dark place. And it went. So I was alone at the beach. I went, I found a, 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 a desert dirt road. Probability of anybody finding me there was small and I slashed my throat but there was somebody there his name was Nilsson and he realized what was happening I lied to him I said okay I was trying to get rid of my uh, bikini and I you know slashed my throat instead <laughs> so believable um, and then he took me to a to a local hospital it was five minutes from there uh, the 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 blood was gushing so so strong that the whole car was soaking in blood because I I, I nipped the juggler and I got into the hospital. There was this I saw the faces of the people, the, the nurses, and the oh no oh no. We, we need to, to get you to I said, okay, come down. If you don't come down, we're not going to solve this problem. Suddenly, I was very calm. And they stitched me. There was no surgery room. There was every, anything. Everything bad could have happened. After they stitched me, one of the doctors said, look, we don't have the resources here. You're in the middle of nowhere. We can't even transport you. To a decent hospital. So we did what we could. We couldn't even see what we were stitching. There's so much blood. Uh, but, and you have, in half an hour, we're going to see if the juggler holds. Because if it leaks, you're going to go into shock and die. And there's nothing we can do. That was an, an interesting experience. Um, 
it was the it was a very good half hour in my life because there was nothing I could do. And I didn't know if I was going to survive or not. And I was suddenly incredibly aware of my surroundings, of everything that was happening around poor people with sick children, completely powerless. And that's when I came back um, after the half hour passed, I drove back alone. I wouldn't call my family because my brother had lost his son at that specific place in a car crash. So I didn't want to traumatize my, my siblings or my parents, of course. So I came back to Sao Paulo and that's when I designed my first program since I couldn't move the upper limbs uh, because of the stitches. Um, I designed a program where I, I did only lower limb work, but it had to be every day. Something told me that that was a trick. If I didn't contract my muscles, the big, big muscles, large muscle chains, um, consistently and regularly, I was not going to survive. Funny thing is that the research showing this is true uh, started to be published in 2011, and that was 2005. And something told me that it the muscles were controlling, um, sort of were controlling what, what was going to, what was happening in my brain. We call it today, we call the Mus brain muscle um, fat tissue axis. It's one of the new axes. But <laughs> it would be six years until there was anything in the literature about it. I felt it. I knew that I couldn't stop ever again. And um, I started reading stuff and finding um, underground forums where people spoke about steroids which I didn't know anything about you know just a just the physiology of it I mean I, I I knew the endocrinology of those things better than them but they were talking about stuff that I had no idea I mean what's oxymethalone what's oxandrolone what's what's that and didn't care much about it then but I cared about a word powerlifting they were talking about powerlifting. Somebody talked about it. And I had a friend in one of those forums, and I asked him, he was Brazilian. And I said, um, what's powerlifting? And he said, and he sent me some links. and said, that sounds really, really, really fun. I want to see something. Is there anything in Brazil with powerlifting? And he said, yeah, actually, there is a place in Sao Paulo, not very far from you. And it was the slum, Paraisopolis. Paraisopolis means paradise city. And remember the first day I stepped into that gym? I felt I had found, finally arrived home. I had never touched an Olympic bar before. It felt good. 
it felt familiar. So then was it at this point where you found your home, where you started to analyze yourself and understand this concept of uh, body alienation? I think I wrote about it in 2009. That was 2006. Yes, it was. It was because for the first time I, I experienced an altered state of consciousness as I was lifting. I didn't experience that with, with bodybuilding. People were insisting that I should compete in bodybuilding, which is stupid because I don't have the proportions for that. But uh, just didn't sound fun. Didn't sound right. More than fun. Now, powerlifting was different because at each movement, there was something, something that made sense, that got whole again, something that was fragmented and got back together. That was the start of my idea of body alienation. And as I got stronger and stronger and stronger, I realized there was something out there that I would never reach, but the trap. The track towards that, towards this holy grail, was inside every person, was the perfect lift. The, and, and the, the track towards the perfect lift is uh, marked by moments of complete absence of time, space, and self-awareness. It's like, like a powerful drug. I mean, it's, it's amazing. Because it's like the opposite of death. I've, I've always been kind of attracted to that. I've been a suicidal. I'm a, I'm a little bit of a suicidal type. Maybe that's what pushed me to towards this way. I'm not afraid of dying. And dying sounds like a good alternative when everything is fucked up. When I'm absolutely fragmented. Why? Because death sounds like being nothing, being free from the, from the cage of myself, of the self. And what I was experiencing under the bar was being free of the cage of the self into everythingness instead of nothingness. That would be nothingness. And there's also the bad part that it. it's irreversible, right? So not fun. But lifting is reversible. So you can leave the cage and become everything and then come back. Sounds, sounds creepy, doesn't it? Sounds like meditation. You leave and then that's where you are and then you come back. Yeah. I, th I, thought, I thought it sounded like creepy because I, I did some drugs. <laughs> <laughs> None of them did that. Um, I mean, acid, I was always aware of myself. Um, but under the bar, there's a moment and I have no idea. Uh, well, I do have an idea how much it lasts. A few seconds. And, but it's eternal. I have the body and the mind and the bar and everybody else. It, it just ceases to exist or it's everything the same. And it's good. Man, it's good. It feels so right. So I, I was into something. I've had a lot of guests say that about powerlifting in particular, and especially for women, because there's something, maybe it's some type of 
modality or a way of being that was never encouraged for them. So it was very alien to them, but it felt also very right. Can you define for us what you mean by then alienation? Okay. Um, that we, we, we got to get out of the trippy conversation in a little bit. So um, what I, that started a little bit before when I, um, I was interacting with uh, uh, strength training people in, in forums and stuff. And actually started when I, I realized there was prejudice against muscular people. And I said, look, that sounds a lot like class prejudice. Uh, because let's think back in history. Um, as, as soon as, as, as humanity, as, as, as some uh, societies developed class relations and there was a dominant class that um, dominated and oppressed the other class that worked, um, the class that worked worked with their bodies and the dominant class differentiated itself from everybody else by not having a body. Um, that's not true for everything. Like if, if you, there are so many counterexamples, but I was following a track like in certain Greek societies, dominant class wouldn't do much of a body thing. It's, it's all about the mind and the body was used by the the slaves who would do who would use their bodies to perform work. Um, then you move into the Middle Ages. Same thing. The servants had had a body, and having a body, having a muscular body, having a visible body, meant being an outcast, being not in the dominant class. When you you, you look at pictures in the Renaissance, um, those very soft and non-muscular people are uh, obviously a, a, a portrait of the dominant class. So I, I said, okay, that looks to me like a little bit of a class thing because in Brazil, the most visibly muscular people are the construction workers. Most of them from the Northeast, meaning they are a mixture of black and indigenous. So there's racism. Rejecting the muscular body, for me at the time, I said, I have a hypothesis that this is a rejection. The, the prejudice against muscular bodies and strength is a rejection of the working class. Oh, most definitely. I would even say in Asian history, a lot of people don't understand the appeal of whiteness, why Asians want to be lighter skinned, and they think it's a want to be like white Westerners, and it has nothing to do with that. Because this goes way back and it all had to do with this class idea that um, if you're dark, that means you're working outside with your hands, with your muscles and you're working in the sun and you get darker. If you're lighter skinned, then you're an aristocrat and you stay indoors. So then skin color was a way to differentiate classes. And I and I wonder on a human instinctual level if that is at the root of racism. Darkness means you're lower. You're a peasant. You're a worker. And I'm an aristocrat, so I am lighter. There you go. And that was my first reasoning. But, I mean, it's, it's true, but it's more complex than that. If you, if you go into the history of religions, many religions reject the body. So you flagellate the body to achieve spiritual 
elevation or improvement. So you don't have sex, you starve yourself, you flagellate yourself. So basically the theory is if you destroy the body, the mind will be free. You see that in many religions, many religions throughout history. And where does it come from? That's a big question. I don't have a, I don't have a, 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 a very good answer, but I do know that as we migrated into industrial societies and globalization, this pattern of body alienation took different forms and very dangerous forms. I would even say for atheists today who are all about sci-fi and technology, they want to alienate themselves from their body, right? And drop their body, get rid of their body to expand the mind and upload their brains onto the internet or onto a computer. But it's like a continuation of this old idea that you're speaking of. Absolutely. Absolutely. Most of my friends are intellectuals who never had time or never allowed themselves to have time to to do any, any, any intense physical thing. And when I say intense, it's that if, you, if you don't go intense, it's very hard to achieve this level of integration of fragmented parts. We're fragmented. The moment we put our kids, we, we, we go into elementary school and people sit us in chairs. That moment is the crucial moment for our separation of body and, 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 and mind. If I had to redesign schools, kids would not sit on chairs. It would be completely different. If I had to redesign um, a nursery room, it would have mountain climbing walls and the child would just roll on the ground, which is a lot of what I did with my own child. Because we cannot separate the body. The moment we Put a child, sit them on a chair, and make them sit still for hours. We're starting their body alienation. And then it's also pretty um, gender specific. Boys are less alienated than girls because they're still allowed to do uh, three dimensional things. They're allowed to climb, to jump. You see, they explore the three dimensions of space. Whereas girls are supposed to be three-dimensional, bi-dimensional. Um, what is a good thing for a girl to, girl to do? Um, drawings, crafts, right? On a table. Two dimensions. So girls that climb on trees, hey, you come down. That's not a, 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 a girl thing. It was like that until my childhood. I remember uh, one of my teachers, because I, I'm not a violent, I was never a bully, but I, I couldn't control my strength. And um, although I was always the tiniest, I hit really hard. Um, and I, sometimes I was called by the boys to solve, um, to solve a, a, a conflict. Who was right and who was wrong? And if they decided that the, the, the wrong party had to be punished, I was the one to deliver the, the punishment. And that time, I, I just hit in a ritualistic form. And I was called by a, a teacher and said, why are you doing this? This is a boy thing. We, girls don't, don't fight. They don't hit. And I was kind of turned and said, 
that's not my, what my mother says. <laughs> <laughs> that was always my answer to things. That's not what my mom says. My mother was, was uh, my mother is a wild girl and she's just, <laughs> just awesome. But, you know, um, when, when, when you start saying, oh, this is a girl thing to do, this is a boy thing to do, both are alienated. Yes. But women suffer the most. No, you're right. I think about uh, how we gender any type of physical activity as uh, like a young child, a girl doesn't just sit there and do those type of uh, table activities like you talked about, maybe other than dancing, right? But mostly just stuff at the table. If they do anything physical, then they're called a tomboy or they have to be gendered in a masculine way as if, like you said, exploring the world in three dimensions is only for men. Exactly. And women are just supposed to sit there, sit behind and wait for their men to come back. And it's just so fucked up. Exactly. But that's unfortunately universal. And um, so uh, thinking about the the girls and boys and then how they develop, because at this at this point, I was already deep into training in 2000, 2004. The World Health Organization released a very important task force for nutrition and exercise. That was when officially the world had to acknowledge that um, the most important source of morbidity and mortality in the world, obviously much more in the industrial part of the world, um, was inactivity and bad nutrition. So I was involved in that through the Pan American Health Organization. Um, I thought it was a, 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 an important opportunity for us to address this kind of thing, uh, since we're, we would have to deal with a whole population of people who live their whole lives until they reach adult life, sick, um, alienated from their bodies. Um, and that's when I, I, that's why I told you that um, when, we, when we advance into modern industrial society, the pattern of body alienation changes. Because instead of having four people using their bodies, um, as opposed to um, the dominant class not using their bodies, we invert these things. Um, poor people today are the ones who are forced into um, physically inadequate and um, damaging um, jobs. Like, for example, um, being in a counter the whole day in Walmart. That's one of the, the options that poor people have, working in a counter, sitting the whole day. Um, sometimes you have a little bit of movement. If, you, if, you can, if, if the woman can get a job in, the, let's say, the, um, the warehouse, but still, there's much less movement. And also, um, for in industrial societies, uh, the poor people are forced into uh, into food habits that will make them sick because of the inverse relation between calorie density and price. So the cheapest food is going to be the most calorie dense food. Um, And it bothers me a lot, a lot uh, when 
I, I was forced to um, interact with people from the, the fitness industry, their, um, their rejection and their attitude towards obese people. Because obesity is a disease of poverty today. And we have all the numbers to show that. Oh, just a second. One thing that I, I, I failed to mention before about girls and boys, um, there are, there's, there's indirect uh, scientific evidence of that. Like, for example, um, I, I found a, a set of interesting articles about calorie expenditure reduction before puberty among girls. And that was probably because these girls at eight and nine years old were becoming less active, whereas the boys were keeping active. Obviously, when puberty hits, they become even more active, but that's hormonal. Um, what uh, this research shows is that way before puberty, there is a gender differentiation in calorie consumption, it's, and it's sudden. Like, until six years old or something like that, five, six, the, the expenditure is more or less the same. And as, um, as they in, assimilate gender roles, traditional gender roles, more when they grow a little older, especially past seven years old, um, then girls start spending less um, calories and boys just keep spending them. But uh, let's go back to our modern industrial society scene. And that's where we see the, um, the fitness industry. So the poor people, <laughs> the poor people are not uh, benefited by the fitness industry at all. I would also add that this disdain for obese is intertwined with racism and classism because oftentimes, like you said, they don't like the obese because in their mind, they imagine a poor person. And secondly, a lot of times, having myself been involved in the fitness industry, I would also say they often imagine a person of color when they think of an obese person. Yeah, they do. And they have a reason to. Because poverty is associated with race. And um, the, there are more, percentage-wise, there are more obese people among the black and Hispanics than whites uh, nationwide in the United States. Um, if you if you if you control by income, then uh, the differences be become less less important. I mean, if you go poor poor uh, poor black poor brown poor white will be equally vulnerable to obesity. Um, not equally, but more or less, okay. The difference is going to decrease, uh, but if you get, uh, if you go on the average nationwide, uh, obesity will um, will victimize the black and Hispanic population more than whites, Caucasian. So, I don't know about Asians, okay, because that's a, a much smaller. Population, and I haven't seen a study specifically um, focusing on, on Asians. Um, uh, so I, I wouldn't be able to, to tell you anything about it. But yeah, when when 
when one thinks about an obese person, they're going to think about either um, a, 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 they're going to think about someone who is less educated, less um, classy, less uh, less everything, and more to the brown side of the scale. Yep. And to clarify my previous point, what I was meaning is that then this combines with their previous prejudgments and stereotypes and racist ideas about a certain group. And then it gets combined with their disdain for obesity. And then it becomes an even greater disdain or hate. Exactly. And what that does is that even when you have some, but some place like a community uh, initiative or something um, for people to uh, exercise for free, the obese people will self select they're not going there because uh, they don't want to be stared at. They are already depressed. They're already sick, and they want—they they just don't want to be seen. That—that's uh, uh, one of the worst um, consequences of body alienation. Is that um, depending on the con- on, on where it leads, the person doesn't even want to have that body uh, doesn't want to look at that body doesn't want to feed that body well they just want to live inside their heads uh, as much as possible it's 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 really serious and uh, now um, I, I think body alienation is something that has to be taken seriously because it victimizes the most vulnerable elements of our society. When people um, ask me about, and that's, uh, I, I know that's a forbidden subject for a lot of people, Planet Fitness um, and, and CrossFit. Well, they're on opposite sides of the income scale, right? So CrossFit is very expensive, so um, it's going to be populated by mostly by fit white people and planet fitness the most expensive membership plan they have is 20 something dollars but anyone anyone can get a membership in their neighborhood for ten dollars so what i i i'm not i'm not defending planet fitness as um i'm not defending planet fitness period because Planet is not a person. A company is not a person. So they don't have social responsibility. They don't have morality. They're not good. They're not bad. They just function through the logic of profit. Sometimes the logic of profit happens to be not that bad. In the case of Planet Fitness, that's it. It's, it's, a, it's a big chain, but it's mostly a franchise now. So the neighborhood Planet Fitness um, may reflect what that community needs. And like my Planet Fitness, the one I, I go to uh, here in Oklahoma City, I, I, I went to others because I, I have the, the card, the very expensive <laughs> $20 membership, so I can go to any Planet Fitness. But I go to this specific one in the poorest part of, the, 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 of town. And it's owned by um, a young African-American 
uh, guy. And he made it a very, very interesting place. So you have a lot of uh, people of color there, a lot of them. Um, at least half of the staff speak Spanish. So many of the immigrants, nobody asks for their social security number. So don't care about if you're documented or not, not at all. So many of uh, the people who go there, they don't speak English. So having staff that speak Spanish is very important here. They need to feel, um, that's the first step of feeling um, welcome, feeling that they belong. Uh, the second step is they look around and they see people like them, see people similar. They're going to be uh, obese people, uh, people with disabilities, um, all body types, people with uh, big ass and, and thighs and uh, other people with, no, with the fat concentrated on their upper body, uh, just all sorts of body types. So it's easier for someone who was um, discriminated everywhere else to feel, you know, um, I can be myself here. Nobody's going to look at me, stare at me, and nobody will do bad things to me. Um, also, I have never, in four years that I've been here, I've never heard that infamous lung alarm. And people, you know, the, the, in the beginning uh, of Planet Fitness, uh, they had a few ads that were transphobic, that were um, discriminated against muscular people, uh, a little bit racist, because, you know, the people who could go to Planet Fitness were all white, not muscular, and either very clearly male or female. So that was a bad marketing thing they did, but they deleted all that, that, that stuff from their YouTubes. And, and at that time, I remember that um, the strength community re, uh, reacted in a very violent way because they, they were seen as being uh, anti-athlete. Uh, discriminating athletes they were it was a wrong it was a very very wrong marketing uh, approach and since corporations are are, are, are geared towards profit <laughs> very soon they fixed their track so that's what I try to uh, explain to people um, is saying that Planet Fitness is a bad thing or a bad company or a good company or this this is a non-issue. These are corporations. All of them are corporations. The 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 gym that started uh, the campaign against Planet Fitness is also a corporation, except it's a small business. But that's how the strength community reacted. It's just uh, childish to think that way. I prefer to think that many Planet Fitness franchises in, in, in poor neighborhoods are more, how can I say that? They are at an advantage 
to reflect the needs of their community more than a strength gym. Strength gyms are stereotyped and they are discriminatory in general. Frequently they're racist and frequently they, they um, embrace right-wing uh, ideologies. You know what it sounds like is uh, the way you think about different fitness models is the same way you think about religion in that you're not anti, you're not just going to be attacking these things. You're agnostic about all these things. So if you see that it helps the community and it serves a function and uh, people get something out of it and that's all they have, that is their only form of connecting with their body, then why are you going to hate on it? If it's their only form, going back to different types of religions, their only form of cultural resistance, why are you going to hate on it? It seems like you apply the same logic to everything you look at. And even going back to the Communist Party, that even though you had a bad experience, I mean, a terrible, terrible, traumatic experience with the uh, organizations you were involved in, you still look at it objectively, agnostically. And it's like, well, what's the ultimate point here? I guess my point is you think about everything like a scientist. <laughs> I never heard that. That's a great explanation. Yeah, that's pretty much it. Um, here's the thing. When I was a teenager, before any organization, I realized it uh, and I started reading Angles. Angles was my, my first reading, and I fell in love with that because it allowed me to think of an ideal world, a utopia. And at, now at 56, what I think is you've got to have an utopia at some time in your life because it's like a compass that shows you something that is not achievable it's an ideal type but it it shows you the way the way is that you know that um phrase from each one according to their ability and to each one according to their need yes okay that's attributed to to marx but it comes from way before Marx. It comes from the, um, you know, um, worded in that way. It comes from the anarchists, from the First International. Yes. And very soon, the First International uh, was called, I think by Marx himself, um, Utopian Socialists. So thinking back on everything we're talking about, at some time in your life, if you don't have an utopia, um, even if it's very romanticized, something that is purely good and worth giving your life for, uh, then you're not going to be of much use to society. So the fact that we don't have a perfect organization or a perfect path to a perfect society or a perfect world doesn't mean that perfect world that I dreamed of when I was 12 doesn't exist in my mind and it's always driving my actions. So it's easier to accept the best possible alternative today. And I think that's what you, what you meant. I mean, yeah, the Communist Party <laughs> fucked up real bad and so did the Trotskys. But if today, if today they sit on the table with everybody, all the other progressive forces in Brazil, and agree 
to fight against fascism and compose a democratic front to go against Bolsonaro and wipe out the fascists from power, I am the first one to sit beside them. I may want to kill my rapist, but that doesn't interfere, not even a little bit, with my willingness to sit down with them if they agree. Unfortunately, they don't. But if they agree, we're all together because the greater good is more important. Like now, what is the greater good? The greater good is that we need to help people reclaim their bodies and be masters of their bodies. Seriously, um, health education is not rocket science. I write, uh, you know, some health education in a little bit, you know, more complex form, but I can write real simple because at the slum, um, there were moments that uh, I was there to have conversations with the older women about breakfast, about um, food, about things like that. Um, and of course, I cannot talk about protein and carbohydrates and lipids. They are quasi-illiterate. So it is possible to help people reclaim their bodies, be mindful of what they eat, and well, do the best job possible, given the, the constraints, given the income constraints. And it's also possible to design policies. I offered, actually, just to a bunch of uh, politicians. I told them, look, um, <laughs> I have experience in designing policies, okay? I, I was recruited as a, in, in task forces in Brazil uh, by the federal government for a lot of things that you need. I know how to do it. And I'll do it for free. And never got a, an answer. Uh, so I'm just sorry that uh, power relations and and uh, their focus on whatever it is they, they, they need to, to do to elect themselves is more important than designing solid policies that will address poverty at a grassroots level. Um, I'm sorry. I look at things and I, 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 I'm not very optimistic. I, I feel that we're going back into the years of lead. Anos de Shumbo, the very heavy, horrible years in which we have to withdraw and do, you know, very solid grassroots work because Nothing else is working. Something that I loved you said was about the compass. And I guess when you're really down and when you lose all hope and optimism is when that compass in your heart is the most important because you, you need to know what this is all for, where you're aiming for, and what the greater good is. Otherwise, it feels like everything is meaningless. And especially for somebody who is suffering from depression or suicide, you need to know it all means something. Exactly. The funny thing is you need to know in your mind and your body. If, if you're separated, it's very hard. And that's why suicide is such a, a, an important option, unfortunately, for people um, who uh, were victimized by rape. Because 
obviously their body's not there anymore. Um, things like that. So, uh, yeah, we think with our minds and our bodies. Uh, until we realize that, it's going to be hard to design approaches that are actually effective. And, um, we'd like to talk a little bit about fights, too. Um, I, in, my, <laughs> in my ideal world, every community would have a community uh, center for, uh, to train martial arts. Whatever that community chooses, like in Brazil, it's possibly going to be capoeira. Um, in many, many, many places, like um, in Bahia or um, some other, and some other places it would be Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. Uh, doesn't matter. You know why? Because um, in evolutionary terms, our body uh, was selected for certain tasks and fighting and exerting strength um, is very powerful to, 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 to effectively reconnect ourselves to ourselves because it's down there in our origin as, as a species. Um, the human grip is directly associated with the act of throwing, uh, of striking. So the fights um, are not just an outlet for aggression. I, I know that a lot of moms uh, enroll their kids in, in, in uh, fighting school uh, because it's a way to control their aggression. No, no. Uh, the fights are at the foundation of our experience as humans. I agree. I actually don't like it when people use it in that way because it projects our own neuroses or our own psychosis onto this activity. And the activity doesn't deserve that. The activity should be the activity. And instead of you putting something onto it, it should be you gaining something from the activity. Exactly. And I think ultimately the activity is about expression and reclaiming, reclaiming yourself, getting in touch with yourself and also a lot of times people come to it after trauma. So then it should be also then a form of healing. And release. Yes, exactly. Um, healing. If you think about the concept of healing, healing is a lot about putting together fragmented parts. It, the trauma does. It fragments the person. It breaks you down. That, that's where the metaphor comes from. It, it broke me down. It broke them down. Why? What's breaking? It's fragmenting. And, and may the chips fall where they may. And they fall. <laughs> and sometimes they fall far. And you need to fetch them and put them together. It is possible to put them together. But it, we have tools for that. The tools to, re, to, to, to heal, to reconnect, to reclaim one's identity cannot be independent of their body. It has to involve it. So I think the fights are extremely important because they're powerful reminders of what our bodies are. And also what they're capable of. Uh, oh, yeah. 
I, I mean, it's it's where you you may if, if you go deep and you let yourself immerse in that art, uh, deconstruct the notion of limit, because at the same time there will be uh, obviously uh, uh, objective limits. You you, you are a tiny short human that's objective but the notion that well this is something i will never be able to do no it's there it's always a possibility it's in the horizon and while you are training it's always a possibility it can happen and you're free to try you're free to try to overcome any limit and uh that's really really important it's like breaking free from constraints. So I'm, I'm really uh, favorable to that. Now, I remember something when I was a fencer uh, that a friend told me. Uh, we, we were a group of teenagers and <laughs> we did a, a lot of kid stuff. Like Master didn't really, he was not a repressive person. So he left the, the drawer, the office drawer open and we took there were little uh, uh, tickets for for uh, the athletes' lunch, the athletes' snack, and we took like five each. <laughs> we were supposed to take only one, but he never never locked the the drawer. So we, the people at the cafeteria, they hated us because <laughs> we ate too much. But we spent five hours training nonstop, and that's how children learn. After, after the class, after fencing class, there was always a strip there, you know. We, we, we moved from strip to strip when, you know, the adults kicked us out. And we were always fighting for fun. Um, it's so I don't think it's, it's, a, it's a mystery why we became such good fighters. We're doing, well, after class, we were just playing and our play was practice. We're practicing judges too. And uh, the thing that I wanted to say is I remember after I, I passed my uh, insignia exam, it's a serious exam where you have to memorize 56 rules and demonstrate it to a committee. I never saw it in any other sport. I mean, it's a commitment to the sport. And after I passed my exam and I could uh, fight competitively, this friend told me, he said, you know, when we're just having fun and going to the cafeteria, you're you. But when you put on the mask, you scare us. It's like you're a different person. You're scary. You're very scary. It's like a monster. And um, so I realized something. When I put on the mask and the other fencer was also wearing their mask. I was not myself, and the other person was not another person. The two fencers were just two aspects of one thing, and my role was to overcome whatever. So I always saw my, my opponent as a mirror of myself, and I had to overcome things, and he, that opponent was 
lending their body for me to try to do it. And I think that was a beautiful part of my fighting experience is that my opponent was always my best friend uh, because that person was landing their masked body for me to fight against myself, for me to not fight against, to destroy, but me for me to overcome things on myself. And my greatest victory at the national championship was against a girl that looked very much like me. She was bigger than me, a little bigger, but she had the same type of body. And when the two of us were fighting, she looked so much like me. Her hair color was like mine. And um, she looked so much like me that I, I actually felt I was fighting myself. And that was something really beautiful and really important. Um, a fight, well, things can hurt. When I train karate, I, I, yeah, well, some, some strikes really hurt. But I learned a lot. It was actually fascinating. It was, I didn't want to stop. It was always a chance of doing something, of going a little, a little bit more, a little bit more, a little bit more. Uh, I think striking was, was more appealing to me. Um, karate, uh, a little bit of taekwondo. Um, I, I, I had a, some judo classes, but. It was not as it was not the same thing. Uh, maybe it would be if I learned more, but I think the fights they offer you this incredible uh, option that this this opportunity of uh, questioning all limits, being absolutely centered in yourself. It's a it's, it's you see it's there. The experiences in the fight and in lifting, they are actually complementary. And neurologically, they are too. Um, fighting requires a lot of awareness, of spatial awareness. You have to be extremely aware of, of, of your opponent, right? So it's a different type of focus. And it's there, there are some studies about... Um, what neurological aspects are important for this type of focus, like um, basketball, you, you, you have to, you know, be aware of something that could be happening at your side and in front of you at the same time. In fight, you have to be extremely aware of your opponent. In lifting, it's exactly the opposite. And it's a different type of awareness. And neurologically, it's totally different. There's a sensory funneling. and and, and uh, the, the perfect state for lifting is sensory deprivation. You don't feel, you don't see, you don't smell. You, there's nothing except yourself. When the bar is in your hands or on your back, it's not a bar. It's you. It's called we call the athlete barbell system. The athlete barbell system is a 
is a unity. And when you are lifting, you are absolutely aware that you and the bar are one and the same. There's nothing else. Um, it's very common for, um, for lifters to fail to hear the judge command because um, total sensory deprivation means that you don't hear the judge too. So it has to be, it has to be trained. You have to, be, to train yourself to tune out everything except the voice of the judge. But yeah, it's sensory deprivation. It's the opposite of fighting. Both requires both require um, the person to be centered, to be inside that moment and be their body, be their body. And that's the one thing that I always uh, uh, talk to my students about. I don't have a body. I am a body. I don't have a mind. I am a mind. Because when you say, I have a mind, I have a body, well, who are you? If you, if you can possess or dispossess your body or your mind, so who are you? Who is the owner? It's this, this, this external, this um, third person that can have a body, maybe they can sell the body, they can, I don't know, destroy the body or have a mind but you can do whatever you want because you're external to it. There's no third party. That's the, 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 the big thing about overcoming body alienation and make staff with people who are chronically inactive is to allow them to play and to remember because we have a, a, a record of not being alienated. It's when we were babies. I think this record is always there. And once we can recover what is fun to do with using that body that is yourself, but you're not totally aware of it, that's the start. That's why I don't, I don't like programs. Okay, the person is inactive. Let's get them to the easiest part of program with guided machines. No, no. The first approach is whatever the person feels like. So there's has to be um, uh, freedom to explore the space and to explore their bodies, to explore um, things they can do. And from there, we move into whatever is there to do. What do you want? You want, want to dance? You want to fight? You want to do some guided machine stuff? You want to do some weightlifting? Whatever. Then you have options there you, you can't put limits to to the opportunities to for a person to reclaim their body so that was it my my memory of my friend saying that i was a different thing with a mask so i feel like we could talk forever you definitely <laughs> need to come back on the show so we could talk about some of these other ideas and explore them further but I really appreciate your time. Now I feel like I need to go out there and do something. I need to lift something heavy or go for a run or do some martial arts. So uh, thank you for sharing your incredible story and some of your insight. Now, where can people find you? Oh, there's a bunch of options online. Um, I have, I'll give you all my emails and um, 
social media contacts. People are free to to contact me. I I, I reply. I, I really like email, but um, there are other alternatives too. Just don't call me on the phone because <laughs> um, yeah, I have hyperacusis, so my phone is permanently muted. Uh, but I use whatever people like. Okay, WhatsApp or Telegram or Signal. Signal is really cool, and whatever whatever they like. I mean, I'm 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 everywhere. I'll give you all my 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 media, all my handles. And uh, just contact me, and and I'm available. Cool. All right, then I'll put all of that in the show notes. Thank you so much. Thank you, Sam. It was a, a, a an honor. Now that's the show. We've grown Southpaw purely from word of mouth, so that means it's all organic. So if you're already spreading the word, please continue to do so. If you've never done it, please consider telling your friends, sharing on social media, and also leaving us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. This will make it easier for others to find us. And since this is independent media, every dollar you pledge on Patreon goes a long way in the production of the show and will help us expand with more content on more platforms. Show your Southpaw solidarity by supporting us at patreon.com slash southpawpod.